Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Ben Barakoff, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me on here. It's a real honor to be uh, chatting with you today, Mark. Took a, a little bit just to find a window between when you were done some of your capture work and before Christmas, so it's pretty cool to squeeze this in a few days before before Christmas. It'll it's coming out after Christmas, like in the new year. But just to let folks know, it's uh, we are recording before Christmas and. And you got your poinsettia in the window back there. Yeah, that's right. The family's got, uh, this is not our real Christmas tree, but our little fake one there in the back corner and all the Christmas pillows out. And yeah, everybody's all excited for the for the season. Yeah, we're getting there. Just uh, my wife's down doing a grocery shop right now. So we do we do a wild game dinner for Christmas now we've switched over that and so I've tried to hand off the chef baton to the kids this year and so earlier this fall it's like hey what do you want to do for the wild Christmas dinner and they're like tacos so yeah (laughs) so it's gonna (laughs) be a a wild taco dinner taco bar uh pulled moose uh um pulled goose meat and I'm gonna do some fish tacos so I'm gonna fry up some perch from ice fishing last winter so that's our christmas dinner wow that sounds fantastic i want to come over for that yeah it's a lot of fun we got sick of turkey so yeah that's funny that we just talk about that because i was mentioning that to my wife this morning and i said uh well can we have can we have tacos for christmas instead of turkeys <laughs> well <laughs> now you, you can't hey yeah. Yeah. mark's family yeah what the heck <laughs> yeah we could have some elk meat tacos no that's pretty cool So, Ben, you are a helicopter pilot. You are the president of Canadian Wildlife Captures and a hunter. Yeah, you betcha. Yeah, I sort of feel pretty fortunate to be able to integrate some of my passions into a career that that I've been really focused on for the last 11 years. Um, Yeah, and it gets me out in the field a lot, which is what I really like. 
I'm a helicopter pilot, but I always sort of consider myself not really a pilot. I just like being out in the outdoors. Operating machinery, machinery was one of the things that I was always interested in. Helicopters seemed to be the ultimate machine, and one thing sort of led to another. And now I find myself, um, uh, it's not a full year-round gig, but um, the, the wildlife capture stuff involving helicopters uh, at least six months out of the year. Um, and then it's sort of also, it's also gone into some ground-based stuff as well. So we've been doing some deer captures on the ground, cougar captures by darting with dogs and yeah, all kinds of neat stuff. And the best part is, is meeting all the neat, interesting biologists, veterinarians and stuff along the way and, and some of their passions and how they got into those fields as well. Yeah, I bet you that's, that's fascinating. And just you're traveling all over the province doing this work correct western canada um we've been ontario manitoba saskatchewan alberta uh, the last seven years has been primarily in british columbia it seems like there's a little extra funding a few extra projects that has been able to keep us busy here home in british columbia but yeah that's i feel super fortunate to be able to have explored most corners of the province and very true we we truly live in an like an incredible place here in british columbia like i still have to pinch myself every time uh, yeah and like just just... saying like meeting people and stuff you know it's kind of like the you know doing a deer capture in the southern okanagan or whatever it's like people are kind of like a a certain culture and then you go up to fort nelson or fort st john or something like that and the communities are very different like the landscape and the wildlife and the ecosystems are different and i've always found traveling in this province then the people are different the communities are different and and then canada itself is like that right like east coast to west coast like what a super exciting you know um job you got like you said i i can just envision this like blending all of these passions like as a hunter and conservation and yeah just being being out so i mean the machine's your office but it's like it's just like you're it's like you're outside right like you're just windows all around you that's right yeah it's so far outside of a normal helicopter pilot's uh sort of daily job you have to be interested in it i've tried to train a couple of pilots that weren't hunters um, for wildlife capture work, and if you're not passionate about it, you're not going to put in the effort that's required to be successful at it because it is, uh, it's it's outside a normal helicopter pilot's realm. That's for sure. Huh. So what what are the uh, well just dive into this. So what are the yeah. what are the attributes of being a hunter? Like the skill set and like. I'm going to guess it's got, there's got to be a little bit of a, like a, um, oh, hey, there's a deer bedded down right below that bluff by that tree. Do you see it? Um, yes. So what, what are, what are those skills like as a hunter that you're bringing from ground level um, to a pilot that has capture technicians in the back that, that just puts you above that the, these other f- folks haven't grasped? Right. It, it probably, I think the the single most thing is, is finding the animals. I think a lot of time there's a misconception that if you're in a helicopter, you just magically see animals all over the place. But it's truly not the case. Um, if you if you say if you're going to catch catch some elk, where are you going to go find them? And is it in a place that you can actually 
get them into an opening and get a net on them and successfully capture them. Um, sometimes like ungulates are probably a little bit easier because um, there's lots of numbers and they're easier to find. But um, tracking wolves, like we do a lot of wolf capture stuff, tracking wolves, being persistent with it, where are the wolves going to tra- travel to. And it's pretty easy if you get snow every second day and you can pick up on a fresh track, you follow it for 15 minutes and, and you'll, you'll hook up with the um, pack of wolves. But it's like knowing which way they're going. Is this track a day old? Or is it five days old? Is it two weeks old? If it is, it hasn't snowed for a week, where, where are they going to be? There's no point in looking around where you, where you are. They're probably going to be 100 kilometers away. So it's just having that sort of hunter instinct to say like, oh, well, they were here, but they're not anymore. But where did they go? Right. Yeah. Right. And just being persistent with that. Yeah, and that's a that's a key thing with uh, with hunting, right? Is patience and persistence, and yep, and that that knowledge of the game. So yeah. that's interesting. What you said is like then the animals still have to be somewhere out. You you know, like you're not going to do a capture when they're in the dense forest or in the thickets that's in the right. riparian areas. So it's like okay. Um, what's the pattern of these elk for the day? They're in the river bottom during the day, and then at night they come out and feed on this open hillside. And we've got to, we've got to be there at daybreak before they move back into the. Just like a hunter, exactly. that just sounds like a hunter, very, yeah. yeah, very cool. Yeah, very yeah. cool. So, walk us through kind of a, a scenario, like a capture scenario, like what, you know, how how does it unfold, like from briefings to you know, what the biologists want to how you work with your team and, and actually right. execute that, that in the field. Sure. Yeah. Well, I'll refer to what I was just doing. I just got home yesterday afternoon after being out uh, in the field for three weeks and we were focused on doing mule deer captures in Southern BC. It's part of the Southern interior mule deer project, which is the longest, largest mule deer project in BC's history. And I think it was planned for a, a five-year study, and I think we're year seven, or it possibly could be even year eight now. Um, th- there's just a bunch of um, PhD students and university students that are working with the data that's being collected out in the field, so that's why it's still continuing on uh, a little bit longer than in, it originally intended. Um, so we've been we've changed a little bit along this um, data collection we were primarily up until this year we were catching juveniles so fawns that have uh, they would have been born in June mid-June and then uh, we catch them in December and we would measure their body fat and weight um, size dimensions of course blood uh, GPS collars and whatnot um, this year we were catching adult doe fawns and to measure their body fat going into winter. Um, but I'm probably skipping ahead there a little bit. So we've been catching them in December. Uh, we've got three study areas that we've been working on. One would be Cache Creek. Uh, the other one would be the West Okanagan Valley. And the other one is the boundary. So Grand Forks to Midway area. And those three study areas have some unique... Um, what would you call it, unique uh, landscapes where they've been altered over the few years by a few different uh, things, drought, forest fires, and they're also their natural grasslands for wintry mule deer. 
So that's what I think why they would select those three areas. So uh, when we go out there, we get all our callers ordered. Um, this year's task was to call our 30 adults in each of the study areas, or at least 30, maybe 32, just so that you have, if one dies, they still have a sample size of at least 30 adults uh, tested this year. Go out there. Uh, the, those projects, the a couple of the experienced provincial biologists were doing the net gunning. So I have a couple of net gunners that work for me throughout the winter, um, but there is a couple of experienced um, net gunner biologists uh, that I was working with. Uh, so our, our crew would uh, be myself as the pilot, the biologist as a net gunner, and then we would also bring another biologist as a, we call it like a mugger, mugger handler or helper. Um, we'd go out in the morning, go find some mule deer in catchable spots. So over the course of like the last seven winters, uh, working the same study areas, we, we know some areas, some like southern aspect grasslands that uh, we can catch the deer. So really when we find the deer, we need to line it all up so that the deer goes through an opening large enough that we can swoop down with the helicopter and get a net on it safely. Um, if the animal is standing out in the middle of the opening, it's not like you just rush in there and just like get a net on it. Mule deer, of course, very fast. When they're scared, they're even faster. They'll put their ears back. They'll run at 50 miles an hour, and that's no word of a lie. So to get it all lined up, um, uh, we assess where the deer is and how we need it to run through an opening. And so we haze the animal maybe downhill a little bit so that we can turn it and run it uphill uh, so that it's running a little bit slower so that when the net is on it, it's not going to tumble too hard, break a leg or possibly break a neck and happen. Um, once that animal, we sweep, sweep in there, get a net on it. Once that animal is entangled in the net, we, the net gunner jumps out immediately, uh, secures the animal, make sure it can't get out of the net. And then uh, I'll just position the helicopter away 20 meters or so away and the mugger will jump out and we just physically restrain the animal by putting a blindfold on it and hobbling the front and back legs together with it looks like kind of a large dog collar. Uh, this secures the animal so that it can't kick you and it can't get up and get away. Um, the samples that we're doing for the mule deer project, uh, like I was mentioning, was measuring body fat with ultrasound. So we measure a, a maximum body fat. And that varies with uh, age of deer and also um, probably with the summer forage that I could find. So I think what they're they're finding with some of that body fat measurements is that our drought years, these deer are going into winter a little bit skinnier mm, than right, ideal. Right. And yep. they're saying that there's a correlation there. The, you know, prior to working with these mule deer, I always thought that uh, mule deer was survival populations were pretty much um, correlated with winter range. So if we take away all their winter range, like say from high fencing or well, um, urban sprawl, whatnot, that that these deer would, uh, wouldn't be able to survive. But uh, apparently that's not really the case. Like if they go into winter fat and healthy because they have had good summer forage, they can pretty much live through any winter. So even right. if it snows, like a lot of snow that they, if they go in healthy into winter, they can they can usually make it through. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I had a uh, worked with a biologist one time that sort of echoed the same thing that, uh, you know, he said, basically, like, their, their fall and summer range 
has got to be in good condition so they can just pack on the weight. And then, and then there's these, you know, good fat that the, the fawns reach a certain body mass, the fat contents there. Cause he said, you know, the reason they move to the winter range is cause it's where the, there's the least amount of snow, which is the least amount of energy to walk around. But he said the food quality, no matter what on the winter range, he said is basically like eating a diet of popcorn for the winter. So it's like, you know, could you imagine like three times a day eating popcorn all winter long? It's like, you better start out with a lot of reserves. So I've never forgot that, you know, that analogy of like living on popcorn. So, I mean, that's cool to learn that stuff. I just, I I find it so fascinating. So when you, when you first go out in the morning, do you kind of do like a high flight and then sort of like, okay, there's some deer on that hillside do a little bit of a, like a, like a few turns, kind of get like a bit of a game plan and then kind of like. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Sometimes we'll do a bit of an overflight over like a series of maybe openings or grasslands and find a couple groups of deers. And then, um, then we can kind of make a bit of a game plan. So it's it's like, okay, well, let's get ourselves prepared. Let's catch one there. We'll catch one there. We'll catch one there, catch one there. And then, um, and move on. And with these deer, um, the sampling, we're doing the ultrasound. We're doing. We're we're, we're weighing them as well, um, and then all the measurements, like so, body dimension measurements, neck girth, um, body length, metatarsus length, um, blood. It takes a little bit longer than normal capture sampling program. Like so, we're usually about twenty minutes um, to thirty minutes for by the for handling from the time we get the net out to the time we release the deer. It's like twenty to thirty minutes. Um, so we're doing a, we're catching about roughly 10 deer a day. It's kind of day, daylight hours are kind of short at this time of year. Of course, today's, today's the shortest day of the year, right? It's winter solstice today. Um, so the days are short. We're just catching maybe eight to 12 deer a day would be a a typical day. And and like you, you mentioned, yeah, you kind of try and plan out your day, um, accordingly. And sometimes like an overflight. Yep. Let's say there's a bunch of deer here. There's a bunch of deer over there. Yeah. So once, once the crew's on the ground, the mugger, I'm like, mugger. Of, yeah. of all names, like you think that, that they would have come up because the analogies, right? Of the little old lady in her purse in the, yeah. the street. And it's like, Hey, what, what do you do for a living? Um, so do you, once they're on the ground, do you just go look for somewhere where you can just put the machine down? And then when they're done, they're going to have to like, hoofer up to where you're where you're sitting yeah typically yeah, okay. you can land the helicopter right beside the animal and when we s- sort of select our capture spot like say it's out in a field or a meadow or maybe some sagebrush grassland um the helicopter that we utilize the Hughes 500 it can land on fairly off level ground it has short rotor diameter high tail rotor it can you can you can land it pretty much anywhere yeah. yeah okay. And so quite okay. often we can land right there. We won't land right beside the deer. Um, even just the deer in the net sometimes isn't totally 100% secure. Like it, they, sometimes they have it maybe entangled around one or two legs, but they can still jump and bounce or, or possibly they could pull out of the net even once the net gunner gets his hands on it. Sometimes it's, it's a bit to handle. So we will quite often drop the neck gunner off right away, reposition the helicopter just maybe 20 meters away, something like that, okay. and then uh, shut down there. 
Yeah. So we're just yeah. landing right beside. There's not too often where we can't land right where the deer is. Sometimes if it's a, a steeper ground, um, yeah, off the land, maybe 100 meters away at most. Um, typically, we're not catching the deer on the steeper ground just because you can get them running uphill often. Um, but once you get the net on them, they'll quickly stop and then they can tumble down the hill. And that's where you can end up with broken limbs or broken neck as well. So quite often we're selecting a spot that is just slight, slight incline uphill. Okay. Yeah. So it's safe for the animal when, yeah, when it goes. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. How, how low do you need to get for the net gunners? Like what's the, the man... 50 miles it's an close. hour like it's close like five meters five oh, yards okay that's a, like a typical shot you could probably um maybe 10 yards would be a longer shot but these deer are especially this year there's no snow really at all like there's only a couple inches of snow in most locations the deer they're running very fast so giving her. um if you're if the helicopter's traveling at the same speed as the deer you essentially can shoot the net right at the deer, but if you're like 10 yards or further, you have to shoot ahead of it. You have to lead it, just like as if you're shooting a duck and it's duck fine. Hunting, yeah. yeah, so there's a lot for uh, a net gunner there. And there's all the different parameters. Like if you're flying into the wind, a strong wind, uh, that also slows the net down. So you have to lead it by even more if you're flying into the wind. If you're flying downwind, um, the net will go farther, and the downwash of the helicopter will actually carry the net much further. So you're almost shooting behind it. Even though the deer is running, you're shooting behind it because the net will get carried by the downwash and the prevailing wind. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. And if you're shooting da- downhill, you got to shoot the internal? From... What's the internal company uh, rubber chicken award if, if they miss <laughs> and somebody's got to go find a net laying on the hillside? <laughs> yep. Yep, we're picking up nets all the time. Some, especially with these mule deer in like low snow years, yeah, there's missed nets for sure. Um, yeah, and usually it's me that's packing the nets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because yeah. they they get into that that slightly broken ground, and they're kind of like they they got that bounce thing right, which could be a a, a slight bounce to the left at the right yep. at the second that the the nets release so i could appreciate that yeah that's quite often what happens when you pull up with the helicopter they'll be running fairly straight until you get you know you're closing that last couple of yards and then they realize that i'm about to get captured by this thing chasing me and then they'll start to deke and dart and go the other way there's a bunch of little techniques that we use to sort of prevent that like you say if we're chasing a deer through a small opening we wait till they get maybe uh, two thirds away across the opening so that they have a target. So now they're like, Oh boy, I'm getting, this thing's chasing me, but they're, they're, they're close enough to say a tree, a bush or the tree line that they're, they think they can make it. So like you kind of, you, you, you can sort of read their, their eyes, what they're doing and their demeanor and what, and it's kind of like, let's just wait till it has a target. It's running for a target. It's committed to that target. Now it's going to run straight. We can fly in there and then net it without it deking off or taking a sharp turn just like you had mentioned wow yeah so what what are some of the um the nuances between the different species that kind of 
make it easier um, and harder? Like, I mean, you know, something like moose in the far north where they're up to their bellies in snow must be a very different scenario than what you're very, just describing. Mm. Yeah. If it if there's deep snow, one of the things that I appreciate about that is that you can't break the animals. Like, the, it doesn't matter if they fall or they're going running downhill. Well, they're not really running because there's such deep snow, but you can't, you can't injure an animal very easily if there's deep snow so that's always a luxury if we're working in deep snow sometimes we've had um like working around prince george with caribou they literally there's so much powder snow that the snow is to their back line like they're actually swimming through the snow so they're moving very slowly but then uh, you'll also have other difficulties is when you put a net onto that really just a neck and a head sticking up above the snow the net never gets down to its feet to entangle it. So it's just kind of like swimming along with a net over its head. Draped over its head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's some there's some difficulties to every situation. Yeah. But yeah. that's a preference. Is lot the more snow the better, the safer. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, okay. Some some species you have to watch out for avalanches. Like we've done goats in the winter and those are always you can control where the animal that you capture is, but then you're also going to displace the other goats in the group uh, outside of their sort of safe living area. And where are you going to displace them to? Are you going to displace them into a, an avalanche chute where there's potential that they're going to trigger an avalanche or get caught in that? Yeah. So much and to care, think caribou about. Too. Yeah, lots, lots to think about. Yeah, yeah. So we like lots of snow, but sometimes snow in certain habitats can create other hazards too. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And the safety of everybody there and the ground and what are they going to yeah. be stepping onto and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, you know, we always talk like as hunters, just kind of switch mindsets, you know, a little bit. Like we always talk about, you know, like hunters, um, they're always giving back to conservation and you know there's a certain kind of like responsibility and you know a, a reward associated with that even if it's just like you have a membership with you know like the wild sheep society and you know they're doing these and you read about it in the magazine you're like i'm you know i'm i'm helping with that but you know tell us about like just kind of your feelings like like this is your job you know like yeah. like you're you're employing people to do this you're getting paid for it but step outside of that little bit of just like the lens of a hunter and what you've done in the past and what you know you have coming up like how does that really like touch your heart like how does it make you feel what you're giving back yeah good question because yeah i'm super passionate about it and um I guess what would that be? I think it's a connection with the lifestyle, like a, a hunting, gathering lifestyle. I, I I grew up with that, always hunting and fishing and foraging and uh, the outdoor lifestyle. And I I think that there's a lot of people that are like minded, such as yourself. I know for sure, and a lot of the people and. I think I want to try and preserve that or maybe make sure that it's a part of my kids' lives and it, that it's preserved for other families that are also have that same mindset. Because yeah. you're, you're involved on like the science side of things, right? You know, like it's, these are researchers, they're putting collars, they're trying to understand what they're doing. They're trying to understand yeah, exactly. body conditions of the animals. And we all talk yeah. about like, that's the kind of objective information we need to help yep. ensure yep. hunting is and sustainable. And I'll be the first one to question, 
if I think that a project is, doesn't have a good scientific purpose, it's like, why are we doing this? The animals don't want to be caught. The, right. Going out there and catching the animals and putting collars on them isn't going to increase the population. It's not going to preserve them. So um, I f- feel strongly about the projects that we work on. Is it is it is it worthwhile? Is it good? Is it giving back to wildlife? Are we learning something from this? Or are we just, quite often we study things to death, right? Where, yeah. um, you know, is there is there a long-term purpose for this? Or what are we trying to learn from this? And where is it going? Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's a good point. I mean, I, 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 I don't do the type of stuff that you do, but I look at a lot of things exactly the same way, kind of, you know, thinking there's some things we just study too much. You just see grad student after grad student after PhD student. It's sort of like, oh, yeah. like I'm doing a urban, urban wildlife study. And it's like, really? It's like you study more animals that live in towns uh, or yeah. wolves and bears. It's like there's a lot of people want to study wolves and bears. And it's like, well, yeah. what about porcupines? You know, it's like, yeah. you know, geez, nobody wants to study them. But I'm like. I'm very concerned about their populations in the Southern Rockies, like, but nobody cares. Right. And it's like, Oh my gosh, got to study the sea wolves. So I, I, I'm glad you're, you know, you stand up a little, little bit like that. I think that must be the the hunter's heart that's inside you. That's right. That's right. And that's a hard one to explain to people too. Whereas I think there's a common misconception, misconception that hunters want to kill everything. Right. Or, but it's it's not the case with the majority of hunters out there. That's for sure. Is that they really truly care about the animals? Um, yes, they harvest them, which involves killing them, which is a hard one to explain to a non-hunter. I mean, you could try to, but it's still it's hard a hard one for non-hunters to grasp is that you're killing animals that you actually care about. But um, it's yeah, the same, it's same thing. The individual and but. And then the greater good of the species, you know, so. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Do you end up talking to a lot of hunters, um, say like a couple things, uh, explain, explaining to them what you're doing? Because I've seen the odd thing where hunters are like, hey, we're just harassing the animals, you know, with the helicopter and this. And you kind of got to, well, you know, from a person that does this, you know, do yeah. you have those types of things? And, and then on the uh, so that would be kind of like the um you know addressing sort of like negative attitudes and then do you find yourself like talking to other hunters going hey you know what like i used to think that you know this is what the mule deer did and you know the cougars yeah. were killing all this but you know i've been on this project for six years and this is what i'm actually seeing like like an education component to what you're doing so sort of the you know are you dispelling some myths and are you helping to educate? Yeah, whenever I get a chance, yeah. I try and like relay the stuff that we're working on and where it's going and what people are finding out. Yeah, I try and share all of that stuff for sure. Um, I have lots of friends as hunters, so I'm always trying to um, promote them to do what they can. I, and if it just comes from like saying um, uh, a fellow like guide uh for the elk hunter around here at home here in powell river he um he was hunting up north uh, and he witnessed lots of predation on on caribou and sheep over the last like five years in this area that he jet boats into and i said hey you know what call this guy 
this is the guy, this is his phone number. Just tell him what you, what you saw out there because you're the guy, you're the eyes on the ground, you're concerned about it. And not to say that somebody's going to do something about it, but at least they'll, they'll talk to somebody that's concerned about it or express your concerns and try and relay well, that's that. That's a little bit of ambassador work there, connecting yeah. hunters with, with the right people. That's cool. So do you get yeah. any negative stuff from the hunting community? Like, you know, why I don't you think so. Or, I've hey, heard you're a just out of... there finding where all the big bucks live, right? <laughs> so. oh, I, I'm sure that lots everybody thinks that <laughs> <laughs> about like the work that we do is like, oh yeah, yeah, know where all the animals. I've heard, I've had that for sure. Okay. Um, we're, we're, yeah, I do some elk guiding for um, the local outfitter here in Powell River. I do like one or two a year, but I've had that from other people. They're like, well, you know exactly where all the elk are. I'm like, well, I don't. I mean, I know where they like they live, the valleys, but so do you. It's like I don't. You still got to go out there and hunt it. I don't. I didn't yeah. have no other advantages any other way than anybody else. Um, but I've also had um, comments I know about uh, some of the stuff they're working on in the Fraser River with the sheep and the uh, MOV yes project, yeah. and yep. there's. Uh, I want to say it's mostly probably just hunt or uh, sorry uh, outfitters that have negative uh, comments about it, and not all of them. Um, there's definitely some that are very supportive for sure, but they're negative comments. We're out there, we're catching like pretty much every female sheep and even some of the rams as well, and putting collars, temporary collars on them all. And I guess from an outfitter standpoint, uh, if you bring a hunter in and you see all these sheep running around with orange collars on, it's not. Uh, an ideal situation and of course they're not happy about anything that's going on because the sheep are dying and they're losing quota and you know that's money in their pocket so i can understand that you know someone might be questioning the process and procedures but i mean truly it's it's in their best interest because it, it's a you know those are the that's a herd that's just steady declining for year after year after year and um yeah. there's yeah. The, the government and the sheep society wild sheep society bc and wild sheep foundation are trying to reverse that trend and get populations back to favorable numbers for everybody yeah i can i can definitely understand like you know seeing a collar on the animal like with your hunter because it's said like well actually other humans have actually touched that animal right so like it, yeah. it kind of changes you know the feeling uh, a little bit but yeah you know, yeah. also, we're also, like you just said, we're in a time frame where we're either those sheep are going to be there in 50 years from now or they're not. And yeah. if folks listening to this haven't seen the Wild Sheep Society's film transmission, um, that's on this Fraser Valley herd. And I just remember it had a big impact on me that I think one of the stats was is this herd had not produced a lamb because the movie kills the lamb like in their first six to nine months of age or something like that. And um, they hadn't produced a lamb that made it to age 12 and like whatever it was, you know, 10 years or something like that. And they were capturing animals, euthanizing animals with movie. And within a couple of years, I think they had like a dozen lambs at survived past a year old kind of story and yeah yeah it's a huge success story it's pretty exciting to be working on a project where you're reversing that trend where the the sheep are surviving and um the lambs are living yeah 
Yeah, no, that must, yeah. that must feel pretty good. That's, yeah. uh, you know, that's one where they're, you know, they're going to look back a hundred years from now and say, Hey, these are what these people were doing. So hopefully your, your name's remembered as being a part, a part yeah, of that. So yeah, there was, yeah. there was somebody that was helping out with that sheep. Like a guy used to wander around and pick up the nets that were missed on the hillside. I can't remember his oh. name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll, we'll make sure. We'll make sure everybody remembers your name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopefully it passes down. Yeah, yeah. And somebody else will take the lead to, yeah. We were out just catching some sheep there on Monday, I think it was. Uh, a few of the leftover of the chasm herd just by Clinton, just on the east side of Clinton. And what, I mean, that's a real sad story where it used to be a pretty uh, healthy population of about 120 California bighorn sheep. And a, a farmer um, there brought in a couple of domestic sheep and they contracted mulvey from the domestic sheep and they started to die off. They had a big die off for a few years and then it's just been so trickle down. Three years ago, we went there and did test and remove. It was pretty easy to do the test and remove there because there was only 12 animals left. Um, that was three years ago. Uh, Right after the test and remove, there was um, six lambs born from six ewes, and four of them survived into winter. Um, and then uh, fast forward two years uh, into to this spring, there was lambs born again, but they all disappeared come mid-July, which is pretty uh, telltale story of how Moby works, is that lambs are born, six week, within six weeks they're, they're gone. And um, when we went out there, there was a ram that was unaccounted for, where I don't know where he came from. It's never been captured before, was never tested before, wasn't part of the herd. So maybe it wandered from the Fraser River or who knows. Sometimes the rams can, can wander pretty far, maybe the Marble Range. Um, but we, we captured them and we couldn't actually neck on them in the forested terrain around that area. So we ended up darting them with chemical immobilization. And um, uh, shortly after we darted it, we could see that the the ram was coughing and um so we landed the helicopter walked in there and and processed them so what we would do is we'd test them so a nasal swab we'd take blood put a gps collar on them and um and then because this one was chemically immobilized we reverse the drug the the mobilizing drug and the ram comes awake and walks away well when this one woke up he is coughing sounded terrible you could tell he was pretty sick and um uh you know we, we probably could have just euthanized it because it's clear that he has pneumonia not for sure that it's got movie it could have something else but um he's got a gps collar on now and i'm sure that i mean that's kind of the, what's leading is that they recontracted movie from a sick ram that had wandered into that that small group of so there's only eight sheep left there now, and I'm sure that Rammel, he's he's actively shedding the movie. I'm sure he is. I, I mean, the test will prove that in the next coming couple of weeks. But yeah, so hopefully the Wild Sheep Society BC, like they're pushing for government to make a policy to prevent domestic sheep coming into wild sheep habitats. And I think that there's pretty there's three pretty solid ways to prevent that and there's a policy where you don't have any domestic sheep in wild sheep habitat or if you do you bring domestic sheep in you have to have them tested tested regularly and if there's any sheep that else like come added to the herd they need to be tested 
or double fencing. If you're going to have domestic sheep and wild sheep habitat, you got to double fence to keep them from from passing that on. But the the, the government, the, the what is it, the Department of like Agriculture, is really slow dragging their heels. It's been years that they've been trying to get a policy in place, but eh, yeah, yeah, there's painful. some complications with. There's a thing pretty much in any jurisdiction that one piece of legislation can't override or contradict another. So if they use the Wildlife Act to say you can't have domestic sheep where there's wild sheep, the Right to Farm Act says you can do whatever you want on private land, basically, uh, for farming operations. So one can't tell the other act what it can and can't do. So... That's my understanding over the years of That's where the, exactly what where, the Mark, where the standoff yeah. has been, and and then it's people like yourselves and Wild Sheep Society and Dr. Helen Swancha and stuff that are on the ground, you know, appealing to the good hearts of ranchers and developing, you know, these these protocols and testing private sheep herds and stuff. And yeah. you're right in there, man. You're right in the mix of all of these these amazing conservation stories as as a hunter and and seeing it f- as part of your job as well so yeah thank super you need to be involved well, no thank you thank you for spreading the word <laughs> thank you for the work that you do it's uh you're not just like a volunteer that shows up and you know can you park the truck over here can you stand here and whatever i mean you're you're a highly skilled highly trained thousands of captures thousands of hours in your machine um yeah i feel blessed super important in conservation yeah feel privileged absolutely yeah and it's so clear it's so clear talking to you like like this is a hunter that's talking about this you know I, i could just i could see what you said at the beginning of the podcast where you try to train other pilots or whatever but if that passion's not there of like hey man like we gotta get this today and you know we got to get two more tomorrow and wrap up and have the extra because there's cougar predation in this area and a couple of these collared animals are probably going to die and you're just yeah "Yeah, we got to make this happen like we got to get to the top of the mountain we got to see what's in that basin type type attitude yep that's exactly it mark yep oh that's cool i mean it's so it's so wonderful it's so refreshing to have folks like yourself a hunter that's part of these critical wildlife conservation research projects um hopefully some of the biologists that you're working with too the net gunners and stuff are also hunters and they got that same that same passion it's not just a just a job <laughs> yeah that's right yeah that's right because it goes so much further if a person's passionate about it you'll do a good job right no that goes with true. anything yeah yeah because the yeah. The true passion, you know, of hunters and conservation is you're always thinking about the next generation, right? Like, yeah. and that's that's kind yeah. of where our motivation comes from. And you got young kids, and you're probably thinking the same thing when you're out there every day, I bet. Yeah, that's right. Very cool. Very cool. Ben, thanks so much for sharing with everybody what you do and your passion. And hopefully folks can hear that. I'm sure they can. Cause sitting here looking at you, you know, it's just like, it's like we're telling hunting stories. Like you just got that, you know, your face is just lit up. Um, talking yeah. about this stuff. I can just see that how much you love what you do. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mark, for spreading the word. Yeah. You always talking about some pretty interesting topics. 
So, well, this is a super interesting topic and meeting you and um, introducing you to everybody. So where can folks find you on Instagram? Um, company. Well, you can find me on Instagram, Canadian Wildlife Capture. Look it up on there. We've got a website, CanadianWildlifeCapture.com. Um, where else? Um, yeah, phone me up. Uh, that's that's the main the main ones where people can follow along with the professional work that your team does uh, every winter and you take great photographs and I always look forward to seeing your photographs and the wildlife work and stuff they're very professional so so right find on. them folks find Canadian wildlife captures on Instagram and <clears throat> follow along this winter on on the great work that they're doing yeah ben. and join join a group what whoever it is like if it's yes. wild sheep society bc which is this you know they're doing lot, all kinds of stuff or there's a bunch of other groups like hunters for bc um bc wildlife federation of course is a big one even just joining those groups supporting those groups because numbers and a small financial support goes a long way so those numbers uh, uh mean a lot for sure and i know that there's still a lot of hunters out there that um you know, they, they, they probably have the same attitude and the same feelings, but if you don't speak up and support some of the groups that are speaking up, yeah, it just kind of falls away, right? We need to make sure yep. that we have a voice and uh, hunters and outdoor enthusiasts stick together because I think that that's a common one too is we're always uh, battling amongst each other and not supporting <laughs> uh, just the general overall lifestyle and things that are important to all of us, of course. Yeah. That's a good, yeah. that's a good message to end on and folks, you can reciprocate. <clears throat> so when you find, <clears throat> when you find Canadian wildlife captures on Instagram, go on, make a comment, say, Hey, thank you. Thanks for the work that you guys are doing and you're putting yourselves out there. So, um, give yeah. them a little, well, give them a little thumbs up, fist bump there on social media and tell, tell the whole crew that you're, that you're thankful for the work that all they all do in conservation. Ben, awesome. thanks so thanks, much Mark. for joining me here this morning and Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you. And Yeah, Merry Christmas to you and your family and enjoy that Christmas dinner. That sounds exciting. You still got time to change the menu for your family for Christmas. So good luck yeah. with that one. Yeah, thanks. Thank you.